Welcome to the 12th episode of the National University of Singapore Middle East Institute podcast series, Boots of the Ground, Security in Transition from the Middle East and Beyond. In this series, we look at the future of warfare. We will see uniformed soldiers or boots on the ground being replaced by private military companies, autonomous weapon system and cyber weapon. My name is Alessandro Arduino and I'm the co-host for this series along with my colleague Amin Lutfi. We are very glad to have with us today, Ashley Coles, Director of Security Risk Asia. Ashley began his career as a kidnap and ransom underwriter at Eastcox, focusing on Latin America family kidnap and ransom insurance. Later on, Ashley specialized in maritime piracy program, again at Eastcox, before joining a major UK broker in London as a security risk broker, focusing on emergency evacuation and security risk in the Asia-Pacific region. Also, if I recall correct, Ashley has been in Hong Kong for many years, in Malaysia, and now he's back in London with UK Price Forbes. And also we are extremely glad to have with us today, Brett Davey. Brett is the founder and managing director of Insurance Consultant Expert, ICE, based here in Singapore. He has over 30 years of underwriting experience in London, and he has a vast insurance knowledge and experience in different class of underwriting and global markets. But today we are going to tap his experience on K&R and cybersecurity. Thank you very much, both of you, for joining us today. In, Thank you, uh, Alex. It's a great pleasure to be here. Re really appreciate it. Thank you very much to you and NUS for having us today. In our previous uh, podcast, we've been talking a lot, uh, almost preaching about the necessity for the private military sector and the private security company to cooperate with the insurance sector. So today I'm really excited to have both of you here and we can go down into the detail in this possible cooperation and the role of this very niche and specialized part of the insurance. Uh, Ashley, to start off, uh, can you give our listener a quick overview of kidnap and ransom insurance. Let's say, how does it work? Who should we be getting it? And especially how long it has been in the market? The floor is yours, Ashley. Thank you, Alex. Thanks very much. Yes. Well, um, I suppose it's worth beginning by saying that the, the kidnap and ransom insurance market has been uh, in existence for approximately 40 years now. So it's an extremely well-established product, um, now very, very commonly purchased. Um, it, the, the insurance has its origins in Latin America, which I don't, I don't think will be a surprise to your listeners. Um, <clears throat> it was developed by insurers and private crisis uh, security firms to originally protect high net worth individuals and their families, um, you know, high profile people and, and companies as well against the, at the time, highly prevalent risk of kidnap, threat and extortion in, in Latin America. And at the time in the 80s, um, in places like Mexico, which were, you know, experiencing a plague of kidnappings by people like uh, Pablo Escobar and his people as a, as a political tool, um, kidnapping was rife. I mean, not only there, but also in places like Venezuela, Brazil, of course, Colombia and Argentina. So the product was developed really to protect people against um, what was a day-to-day -day, uh, crime uh, against the people of those countries. And over the years, this 
highly, as you, as you say, Alex, sort of specialized niche form of insurance has been recognized really as an essential purchase for companies operating in um, or traveling to locations which are, are medium or, or high risk. It's been, I suppose, recognized as being you know, hugely beneficial to um, companies who have a, a particular brand to protect, who have business travelers, and, and of course, those people seconded overseas, but also to protect companies from the risks that they face with inside their own borders these days. And we can talk more about that. That, that focuses on the cyber threat, I think. Um, and now, really, you know, any company of any size will will buy a, a, a confidential kidnap and ransom policy to protect those at the very top of their organization all the way through to anyone um, under their duty of care, regardless of their role and status. Um, the key point being here is that if a company is going to be targeted, um, anyone within that organization can, can be targeted. Um, the, the insurance program itself, as I say, is, is highly confidential. We use code names uh, associated with those programs to protect the buyer of that insurance. And the insurance is a, a really unique hybrid of access to um, world-class insurers who protect the client's financial position in the event of an incident. And then the second strand of that is access on an unlimited basis to the world's leading private security firms and crisis response teams and thereby offering as i say our clients financial protection but perhaps the most important part for our clients is this unlimited access to these crisis advisory firms who are amalgamations of highly experienced individuals those individuals may be um, uh, ex-military uh, ex-intelligence people journalists who have operated in conflict zones, uh, NGO and charity workers who are used to conflict resolution and through years of training come to a position where they're able to respond immediately to and on behalf of our clients who are suffering an incident. And of course, the, the end game of this insurance policy is uh, securing the safe and timely resolution of that incident. Uh, the, the leading insurers in our world, uh, there aren't many of them. You can count them on one hand, really. They would include the likes of AXA XL, uh, Aspen, AIG, Travelers, Brit, TMHCC, and, and Hiscox. And each insurer has an exclusive partnership with one of these world's leading crisis response advisors. So in, in buying a policy for our clients, um, if you like, our clients become... Uh, uh, members of these trusted advisors and have priority and unlimited access to these, these crisis response firms for any kind of incident that, that may occur during you know, their personal lives or, or their business duties. So um, a very, very holistic program, which has grown over the last 40 years to cover, in some cases, up to 56 insured crisis perils. So a very wide program. And we work with companies of all uh, shapes and sizes. We, we work with the high net worth community, and that includes, you know, the celebrity celebrity community as well, uh, and of course those whose work is exposed to malicious actors. And, and one might argue that any company with a large brand these days is exposed on some level to malicious actors. Be that the risk of the kidnapping of a a board director or a high net worth or an individual, or a simple phishing scam to an employee at their desks these days, usually working from home um, uh, uh, on a cyber level. 
we'll talk more about that later, I think. So typically our portfolio supports customers um, who have big brands and people to protect both at home, at home and overseas. But when we look at our portfolio of business, Alex, it tends to be those in the construction, mining, um, I suppose, NGO and charity sector, uh, media and the financial sectors by virtue of the places that they tend to go and do business in the world. Um, but that, you know, that list of industries is, is not exhaustive. And we often we also cover one-off trips or projects for individuals traveling into you know, uncharted territory in, in the name of their business. So I hope that gives you an overview of, 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 of the market and, and, and the product. Definitely, Ashley. And uh, I see there is already a lot of overlapping between the real world security and the cybersecurity, but especially in the area that uh, our focus is based on, it is Middle East. Uh, I can totally agree with you when you mentioned that this kind of product is an essential purchase. Uh, moving to mm. Brett, uh, and uh, moving on from what just Ashley mentioned to us. Brett, do you think uh, that uh, compared to other kind of insurance, let's say uh, health insurance, uh, kidnap and ransom is a more proactive insurance rather than a reactive one in protecting against possible threat. Uh, let me try to clarify my question. Let's say to say that rather than only responding in field claims, the insurers that operated, and as Ashley mentioned, you can count on a hand, uh, in a complex environment, they do closely work with the client in training, preparing, or even handling the threat in real time. Oh, hi, Alex. Um, thank you, first of all, for inviting me uh, to this, uh, your lovely series, excellent series of boots off the ground. Um, just to answer your question, uh, I think that this is absolutely correct. Um, the more proactive um, that clients and private security companies can be, um, the better we're all prepared for the risk, the cheaper the premiums they can get. And actually, they're going to have a much smoother transition all the way through the insurance, right the way through it in case there's an incident or a claim. Um, kidnap and ransom insurance, very much uh, looking at prevention, using training methods and pre-planning with excellent risk management techniques. Uh, the likes of Bryce Forbes, Ashley there, with vast experience, and myself here at ICE, we're very happy to encourage uh, and engage with private security companies especially those that are new to the business, perhaps, and there are quite a lot of new ones around. We'll touch on that later with uh, China. Uh, their clients and insurers, as soon as they can, as soon as possible, they can make sure that each event has a smooth and loss-free outcome by giving us as much information in advance as we can. Uh, we do get, quite often get, a very last-minute transit because one thing we have to bear in mind with this type of business, unlike, say, property risk or a long-term construction risk, which is not so secretive, is that we do have clients try to come and buy insurance very much at the last minute because they don't want um, the actors, um, the, the, the transgressors to know what is going on with the risk in advance. But once we can build trust with the clients and with the private security company, then we can, we can get them to tell us more in advance. So this is something that Myself and Ashley have had a little bit of difficulty with in the last year, uh, dealing with new clients uh, from China, uh, because we'll touch on this again later as well. We're trying to build trust with a group of people that we've never met. Um, and so we are, are often trying to teach them and show them that 
the sooner you let us know what you're doing, the sooner people like Ashley and myself and the insurance companies can point out to you some extra risk management factors that you can put into place in advance, which will make the whole process smoother. Um, the overall vast experience that we, we have overseas here in Singapore and in the London market um, can bring to bear uh, people who can help advise uh, inexperienced and new clients and private security companies where their risks lie, how to prepare for them. In fact, the more experienced insurance players in this area are often willing to offer a prevention discount uh, for the premium to, to in, of each policy so that what we're saying to the client there is um, we will give you back some money if you would help us to help you um, to put into place some risk management and extra prevention because what we often find is that the private security company is looking at their security risk the client wants to get on with their actual business um, but it's the experience perhaps of insurance companies and the likes of Ashley there that can point out factors that have gone wrong in the past and we try to encourage them to put these right in advance by then saying to them we will give you some premium back if you will um, put into place certain mitigating factors in advance. And I think that is an important factor. So to answer your question there in a nutshell, yes, it's very much about uh, risk prevention in advance. Yeah, and you mentioned at the building trust. Uh, I think that uh, building trust uh, in time of COVID-19, uh, especially with new clients that have a different business culture, is definitely not an easy task. Uh, Ashley, uh, I'll, I'll, if you agree with Brett uh, regarding uh, the proactive nature of the, this kind of insurance, uh, uh, in your opinion, what are the different kind of actors that would work uh, with in responding to the risk? Uh, let's say here I'm thinking about, um, as you mentioned before, intelligence company, private security company, state armed forces, you even mention journalists, or we can say local militia or fixer even. So how closely do you guys work with these different actors? Mm. Re really good question. Um, and I think, I think the answer to that is that predominantly we work hand in hand, first and foremost, with uh, private you know, crisis advisory firms, private security firms. And, and these firms are the firms which are you know, I suppose most highly regulated in our industry. Um, they are, as I've sort of identified earlier, you know, the experts in these types of incidents, um, you know, such as an, a new partnership that we have with, um, with one of Asia and, and China's leading security firms, HXZA, who have, you know, thousands of employees worldwide supporting uh, clients through times of crisis and, and in high risk areas. So what we try to do is we aim to partner our clients with the right private security firm to ensure that the client is, I suppose, has the capabilities behind them to, to do their business correctly in the territory in which they're doing it. For example, you know, we would, we would never partner uh, a client of ours with a response firm um, who had no experience in Nigeria if they're in the Gulf of Guinea, if they're operating in the Gulf of Guinea. So we, we look at that very, very carefully. And, and now, in, you know, in the, in the event of an incident, First and foremost, it is the private security firms who are responding for our clients because our clients are given a 24-7, 365-day-a-year 
emergency response line. And that is the line that is triggered, that is activated first um, for our clients. So, you know, depending on the type of incident, I should say, of course, every incident is very, very dif different. Um, those private security firms such as HXZA or SRM or Control Risks, whoever it might be, will draw on their relationships with the local authorities, to your point earlier about local militias and so on and so forth. Local militias and, and, and the military, we don't get heavily involved with directly at all, but the private security firm responding on an incident will draw on relationships, as I say, with those local authorities, um, diplomatic services, and governments to, to secure that safe and, and, and timely resolution of that incident, I guess. So actually the network of people who could become involved in an incident uh, expands and cascades from the, the private security firm. Now, of course, in some territories, um, I've got to be careful what I say here, but in some territories, you'd want to be very careful about which authorities you did work with, um, because if they weren't already involved in the kidnapping in the first place, they may well become involved in the kidnapping uh, further on. I won't mention any names or territories for obvious reasons. Um, so, And of course, those private security responders are highly trained. They understand the political groundwork in which they're working. Um, the other thing I should say is that, you know, our, our product, our product, our insurance program is predicated around peaceful negotiation, which is, you know, time's most, I suppose, successful tried and tested method of a safe release of a victim. So we don't get involved with rescue missions or conflict type situations. Um, it's very much perceived as a, a business transaction, um, which might sound strange to your listeners, but that is that is the simple basis of a negotiation uh, someone is holding someone for something whether that's a financial concession whether that's the payout of land or goods or services and the idea is to resolve that situation successfully and as I say that could involve other other members of the government diplomatic services and so on and so forth so our our products are designed so that the responders the crisis advisors perform a range of duties for that client um, while responding to a case. And, and that's not just limited to the negotiation process with the perpetrators of a kidnapping, for example. So they also provide internal communications within the company to allow that business to, uh, I suppose, continue to function. They liaise with affected family members, uh, affected employees, PR agencies, and, and also they assist the client in negotiating what can be this a very strict legal framework in which they have to stick to in various jurisdictions and when we saw the rise of kidnapping by the islamic state or daesh in in places like syria of course that became very complicated because the islamic state is a um is a sanctioned entity we are not allowed to pay ransoms directly to them and so the responders were helping alongside local authorities um uh, negotiate the client's framework in which they could operate. So I think, as I say, it, it expands. The network can be very, very large in some cases, or it can be extremely small. Oh, thank you. It was a very detailed answer. And you mentioned it in, the, in your answer, Hua Xin Zhong'an. We had that company previously in, uh, in our podcast. Uh, and uh, you also mentioned control risk, and I'm hoping to have them in a near future podcast. So let me follow up with your answer, Ashley. Uh, we don't need, of course, the nitty gritty details, but uh, in order to help us make sense of the role these different actors play, can you give us uh, a very brief play-by-play -play of any specific ransom or kidnapping incident? Let's say, how do you respond 
from the start, from news that the client employee has been kidnapped and how it has evolved. Mm. Yes, thanks, Alex. <coughs> Excuse me. So uh, typically, um, we are not the first ones as the client's broker or advisor to learn of a, a kidnapping incident or a threat or an extortion. The client will contact the 24-7 emergency number <coughs> and access the, the private uh, security responders. They will then, um, on the telephone, a, um, a duty case officer at one of these firms will provide the client with initial telephone advice. And, and you, you know, you'd hope this was in the first hour or two, which we call the golden hour. You know, what, the way the, the client responds to these incidents in the initial stages obviously has a, a long-term impact on the resolution of that incident. So um, they will tell the client what to do and what not to do while taking details. Now, if it is a kidnap for ransom, and it's a verified kidnap for ransom, i.e. the client has received a demand for a missing person, then uh, usually a uh, highly uh, trained consultant will deploy to the headquarters of that company or to the family home of the victim. And then other consultants will deploy to the location of the incident or as, or as, as near as is safely possible. So, for example, in the, uh, the Indian Ocean Somali uh, hijacking uh, epidemic, um, which started in 2008, sometimes it was very, very difficult for consultants to get into Somalia, uh, into Mogadishu and get close to the event. So a lot of these cases were conducted from places like Nairobi. And, and for Syrian kidnap cases, of course, it can be very ch challenging to get across those borders. So things were conducted from Beirut or um, as near as possible. So in that, the client has the consultant managing their business, um, their business at home, at the headquarters, they are setting up a crisis management team for the client. And that, that, will, that will involve a number of key stakeholders, the board of directors, heads of security, risk management, insurance people, group legal type people. And then on the ground, you have a team of people working hand in hand with local authorities, uh, in some cases, to ensure that safe and timely release, the negotiations are linked between the consultants on the ground and the consultants at headquarters to ensure a very uh, a, a simple and efficient transition because i think that the, the most challenging part of these incidents of course is a is the communication piece you know do you pay a ransom immediately as soon as you receive a ransom demand well in in no in most cases the answer is no because what that says to the perpetrators is we have you know unlimited amounts of cash to spend readily but through the negotiations, you you aim to bring that uh, ransom demand uh, down if possible and if safe for the victim. And eventually, as I say, secure that release. Now, obviously, each case is different and our program covers everything from kidnap, threat, extortion, hostage crisis, assault, terrorism type incidents. So each one is different. But that gives you a view of how a, a, a kidnapping for ransom case will work and and those cases could be two hours long they could be two days long the longest cases we've seen have been years long so those consultants are working for and on behalf of the client um, day in day out throughout the whole part of that and of course they're there for the the post-incident debrief as well to allow the client to try and mitigate that kind of risk uh, happening again no, when you mentioned Somalia, it came immediately to my mind uh, the, the problem of piracy that Albeit has been dwindling in the recent year is starting again on the other side of the African continent. And on this, Brett, if I recall correct, uh, 
piracy. Piracy threat uh, is one of your area of expertise. So if I can ask you to give us uh, a similar play-by-play -play with regards how you would assess the risk when someone come to you to underwrite their hull, cargo or crew. What factor would you look at? And what step you would suggest to a shipping company, especially to bring down the premiums? Well, thank you, Alex. Um, excellent answer there from my esteemed colleague, Ashley. And this is following on, as you say, uh, with piracy rather than the kind of land-based kidnapping threat. Uh, we have some slight differences here. I would touch on some of the answers we gave earlier. Um, we do find that, so, so we're dealing here with with vessels uh, traveling from one place to another. And I'll come on in a minute to some of the details we'd like to have, but I would can't stress enough about um, building up trust with clients and, uh, and knowing in advance, as, as much in advance as possible, uh, when these vessels are going to travel, because uh, we certainly had a lot of experience recently of people almost you know, getting in touch with us with, with a day to go. They knew that the, that the, the vessel was going to travel, they knew where it was going, but they, they try to hold on to give the information at the last minute so it perhaps doesn't get into the wrong hands. So it's, it's essential to build up um, some trust with clients who can tell you in advance, almost give you a schedule of what is going on. That, that way, we can give them a much better service, we can give them good advice, we can perhaps tell them where, you know, if it is a difficult journey, where we see the pinch points, perhaps even try to help them where the vessel should avoid if possible, because um, certainly with Price Forbes and London Market Insurers, they will keep very much up to date with the latest maritime news. We will see where there are many incidents coming up. And of course, for all of us, uh, we would have a look at what is happening in the globe if there was a sudden um, escalation or some kind of event around the Middle East, as you mentioned, say Yemen, or something to do with Iraq or Saudi Arabia, then those vessels may be better off moving into another place. But coming down to some of the general detail, um, we like to know things like, well, some of it's obvious, I know, but our, let's, let's, I think a lot of our listeners will be um, new to this. So we'd like to know the full journey description. We'd like to know the type of vehicle. We, we need to know, we need to know from the vessel point of view, what is the name, etc. All of this goes on to the actual contract, the policy. Uh, with the departure and arrival dates, um, any stop-off points, and exactly the route expected to be taken, uh, because obviously we're talking here about piracy, so if, you know, if they're traveling in a, in a nice, nice part of the world, then, then that's fine, but inevitably we get asked for uh, marine piracy cover when they know they're going to go to a different place. Somalia, many, many years ago, was uh, a typical place where there was a lot of piracy. I, I think uh, globally that has been solved now in many ways, but it's cropping up elsewhere around the world. Um, and then we would like to know um, things like the contents that are being carried on the ship. Obviously, some, some of that, sometimes the actors can find out and know which ships are carrying what, so um, they can target those more. Um, we'd like to know the amount of security and guarding for the whole journey. Um, things like, does the vessel have a citadel? Uh, what's the experience of the crew, particularly the captain, uh, to know exactly how to use the citadel, where to go to the citadel? Uh, for those inexperienced, that is the security hole that the crew would go to 
in the event of an attempted um, boarding or, or someone coming too close to the vessel. Um, we'd like to know things like the speed of the vessel. Can it maneuver? Quite often vessels can outmaneuver um, other vessels that are trying to board them. Uh, is the vehicle, is the vessel easily boarded? Um, is there a free board? Um, or has it been provided with easy ways to fend off other vehicles that, or vessels that try to, to, to land on the side of them? Um, also, security company, uh, as Ashley mentioned before, that's very important to all of us these days. We want to work with uh, private security companies that have good experience. So we'd like to know what is the security company that is, that is there on board. Clearly, it would make a huge difference to whether a risk is accepted and what the premium would be if there isn't a security company on board. A vessel that was going into a, an area of known piracy with, say, a uh, expensive load on board, then, then it could almost perhaps be something that couldn't be insured. So we are obviously saying to clients and trying to teach clients, this is something else, by the way, that we do try to do, but we would like to do more of training, um, training programs for clients and for private security companies so that when they come to us with these risks, they already know what we would like to know and see. And the more of the, um, the pieces that I've just mentioned before, the cheaper the premium is going to be because the underwriter is going to feel a lot more comfortable if he knows that this vessel uh, has already got a nice route, it's nicely covered by security, uh, and that we know exactly what is going to go on with it at all times. We like to know the list of crew members. That is essential. They're the people that we are covering after all. So if there are any getting off during the journey or more coming on during the journey, then we would need to know that. Uh, that includes actually knowing the security people that are on board as well. So really everybody on board uh, that is going to be covered by kidnap and ransom, uh, part of the piracy um, policy, we would like to know who exactly they are. Um, as I say, where they're boarding and leaving the ship, that's needed. Um, clients do need to realize that the more information that underwriters can have um, much more likelihood of a reduced premium and a better understanding of the risk by all concerned. Um, but as I say, that's not just the essential factor is the premium. It's things like, let's be fair, we want to get the vessel from one place to another with no incident. Um, so the more risk management that's done in advance, the better. But if there is an incident, then we're going to have a smoother transition through through rescue, as Ashley rightly said there, for the land-based uh, kidnap and, and ransom. It would be the same for, for piracy, negotiation to try and get people uh, free and away. Um, and also, if there is any form of other claim, that claim can be dealt with very, very quickly. Um, we do get some vehicles or some vessels that, particularly when they're anchored or, or, or or just laying off, um, they get boarded just for pilfering. Uh, so those things can be covered as well. Uh, so we, we want to make sure that if the client has a loss, uh, that the claim is paid quickly. So it's not just about having information for a cheaper premium, having the information so that the underwriters can respond quickly um, when there is an incident for the client. Um, one thing I would say on that pilfering front is that um, in the, in the COVID period, and this is, I think this is a factor for, for COVID-19, as we know, it has actually um, brought quite a lot of poverty, joblessness, uh, loss of businesses, especially to people that were probably already um, in an element of poverty. And that has caused 
some areas of the world to now have more and more incidents of people just trying to find a way to, to make a living. And I think last year we, we had something like a 150% increase in the amount of um, attempted boardings and boardings, not full on piracy, but just the Straits of Singapore, for instance, saw much more vehicles uh, going up to large ships and just going on board quickly to, to pilfer things in the middle of the night. So there is an increase in what you might call piracy. Um, clearly, if these people are doing this more and more and more, they may get bolder. And so we may end up with far more uh, full-on piracy events in the longer term. So it's very essential for clients at the moment to really look at their risk management because COVID-19 and the desperation that some people are in now has made them look more and more at how they can get on board vessels and just pilfer. Actually, moving from what Brad just mentioned, that is act of desperate people. Uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, but in the general maritime insurance, uh, that, uh, that kind of insurance is applicable everywhere except for areas that are designated at war risk, uh, where a separate and more high premium cover is needed. Now, while in the past, uh, marking out war zone uh, was almost uh, a straightforward exercise, uh, with the rise that we are witnessing uh, in the last decade of number of non-state actors, proxy and so on, uh, making a difference between war and peace uh, is getting more blurred. We are getting into a more ample gray area. So how do insurance companies make this decision? Yeah, it's a really, really interesting one. And we like it in the insurance world, Alex, because it, it keeps us on our toes, I have to say, day by day. I mean, I think, I think one of the things that, you know, I feel particularly privileged about is, <clears throat> is working here in London, you know, alongside Lloyds of London un underwriters and insurers, and of course, people as experienced as Brett in, in Singapore. Um, now, of course, the, you know, the Lloyds of London insurers here have cutting edge access to things like the JWLA, the Joint War Listed Area updates, the Lloyds list, and, and world's leading political risk analysts, uh, security analysts, and of course, their actuaries in-house. So while the world is extremely fluid, as you've rightly identified, and as, as, as Brett has sort of surmised, um, these areas are being constantly updated. So meaning that really for me as a broker or an advisor to my clients or, or as an underwriter, you know, you're able to present and write your risk accordingly. Um, in, I think in recent years, the best example is, is the Gulf of Guinea off the coast of uh, Nigeria, Togo and Benin. Now, that has almost entirely replaced the Indian Ocean as the global piracy hotspot. And really, in 2008, I don't, I don't think we could have predicted that in the same way that we have. I, mean, I think we saw the Indian Ocean pandemic as a epidemic, as a piracy epidemic, as a, as a long lasting problem. But it sort of came, came and went as soon as you know, private security firms were allowed on board vessels by legislation. So now we see a major problem in, in the Gulf of Guinea off the coast of Nigeria. And, you know, this is an extreme risk location for our clients, both onshore and offshore, because you have a huge piracy problem uh, in the Gulf of Guinea. And, and then onshore, you have opportunistic criminals, you have uh, terrorist organizations and, and, and organized crime syndicates operating uh, kidnapping onshore. And of course, an offshore kidnapping can become an onshore kidnapping quite quickly if the crew are removed uh, from the vessel, which is often the case. So, you know, these are extremely challenging parameters for the insurance and security industries 
to work in. So I think it's worth saying that insurers are certainly not in the business of shying away from from high risk cover. You know, it's, it's what we love. So if anything, it's, it's what the insurance industry is here for. Um, but as you say, this could come at a premium and insurers are constantly updating their programs, their policies to respond to the risks in the maritime and security sectors almost in real time, Alex. So, you know, what might be a, a risk today of a vessel being hijacked in Nigeria, for example, but tomorrow becomes the risk of a rocket attack in the Middle East insurers have to respond to that they have to move with the times and in, in, in you know some days you'll wake up in the morning and there will be a new product to respond to that that new crisis so to, to summarize in very simple terms when when looking at a risk that when we use the word the term risk we we look at what the client is doing and, and where they're going when we present that to the underwriters their job is to assess that risk you know what what is the potential here for a disaster for a loss and they, and they rate it on that basis. So particularly in the maritime world, which is the oldest sector of insurance in the, the Lloyds of London market, we see insurers being extremely bold um, throughout even what we would consider the most complex of underwriting processes. Uh, to, to, you know, as, as Brett said, to, to enable our clients to go about and, and do the day-to-day -day things that they need to do to keep their, their business alive. And, and most of all, I think, keep the, keep the world moving. On this, uh, I would like to give to have a little bit more question later on. But um, I was quite interested when at the beginning Brett mentioned the, uh, about China. Now I do believe uh, that uh, for both of you, the Chinese Belt and Road is going to provide a lot of work. Uh, and if I recall correctly, Brett, you are currently working with Chinese private security company on several BRI project, uh, and this project crossed some of the high risk or even war risk area that we just mentioned. Are there any special consideration or threat that come with protecting this Chinese founded project? Uh, and there is a space in this Chinese led initiative for non-Chinese insurance providers. Um, yeah, this is a very topical question, Alex. Um, and as you state, the Belt and Road Initiative is appearing on a global stage, not just in Asia. I, I think um, you are very experienced in this field and you've studied it a lot. And even I have been uh, interested and surprised to see just how far the BRI goes. There isn't any real boundaries to it. Um, it wasn't that long ago we had an inquiry, me and Ashley were looking at, um, where BRI was mentioned, but it was a Chinese company buying another company in Mexico. So it just goes to show how far the loosely termed BRI perhaps is, is, is traveling. It's not just around the local Asian region or, or Central Asia. Um, to answer the first point you mentioned, um, the insurance considerations would have a knock-on effect on the global considerations, both political and economic for Chinese funded projects. Basically, wherever the Chinese are welcome around the world, then the insurance considerations for threat may seem to be reduced from the local population and government. Uh, that makes obvious sense. But of course, that is a changing landscape all the time. Uh, we've just seen a major change in the USA. Um, it will be fascinating to see how the USA now gets on with China going forwards and whether there is an easing of uh, tensions that we saw before. That may make a difference where China are actually going to operate 
uh, on their Belt and Road initiative and, and other initiatives actually, because we do of course get asked to cover uh, Chinese clients and companies all, all over the world, not just on BRI. Um, but there is there's a couple of types of uh, uh, situation uh, here. So um, basically, wherever the Chinese are welcome around the world, then the, the insurance consideration, where it may seem to be re reduced from the local population and government, as I mentioned, but there is a vice versa, of course, which has to be mentioned. Um, and that is that the type of consideration particularly applies when we consider that these uh, type of insurance risks like kidnap and ransom and say terrorism. So following the global economic and political news events, uh, which, which do change weekly almost, uh, for the Chinese abroad is a good benchmark for risk. But let's take something like um, COVID-19 as an example. Uh, despite the science, uh, there will still be millions of people whose view is that this pandemic is the fault of the Chinese, because as we know, that's technically where it started. Uh, so for those who perhaps lost jobs or their business, uh, and then they see the Chinese turn up uh, on the so-called Belt and Road initiatives to start building anew, it can lead to frustration and an increased threat. Uh, that is human nature. Um, I don't think, as Ashley has mentioned before, we want to necessarily here go into too much detail about which parts of the world um, are going to pose more of a threat to the Chinese, but we can see that almost on the, on the global scale. Uh, they are into Africa and even into Latin America as well. And in those parts of the world, perhaps they, there would be a different view about what COVID-19 has, has done. People may have lost relatives. Uh, and if they are blaming the Chinese for uh, that pandemic, uh, then they may see um, a risk that is being built. It could be a road, it could be a factory, it may just be an executive um, as, as something that they want to take revenge on. So. So yes, we do see the, the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative um, in, in many cases as being a threat. But, but I would say on the reverse side of that, there are plenty of places uh, in the Belt and Road Initiative region, let's take Pakistan for instance, where perhaps they're doing a good job. Uh, they're building new roads, they're bringing in infrastructure, quite often into air, difficult areas, to peoples that have needed this for a long time and perhaps couldn't get it before. So I think it is worth balancing one slightly out with the other. That means that that is a better risk. What it actually does mean is that most of the time they're not going to go and try and insure it. So we're really, me and Ashley, normally only get asked to look at insuring the risks that are, that are difficult and in difficult places. Um, underwriters can follow the political landscape, of course, uh, as part of a number of factors for risk assessment. Uh, that's very important for them to do that. Just just looking at the world and global news on a, on a daily basis is very, very important. There's always something going on that, that may affect the risk threat to any of the clients that we are asked to insure. Uh, one, is for sh one thing is for sure, and that is that the, the Chinese are spending billions on the Belt and Road Initiative projects. Uh, that's, that's factual. Forget the politics for a minute or, or what it actually means in certain countries around the world. Uh, this will have plenty of benefit for those who wish to take advantage of that expenditure and insurance premiums are included in that. The more that they spend and the further they travel um, and the more difficult places they go uh, to build railways and roads, um, then, then the insurance is going to be needed and, and there will be plenty of premiums there for, for, for people to, to benefit from. 
And let me just quickly go on to the second part of your question, if I may, regarding non-Chinese insurance providers. Um, we will seem a little biased, I mean, actually, I guess, to say that, yes, uh, we most certainly feel strongly um, that they, there is a big part to play for us. Um, you know, I think it's an obvious thing to say, but the London market has been around for 300 years, um, and the Chinese insurance industry, uh, not quite as long. And just stating that factor, uh, there is a lot of experience in the London market. A lot of that experience actually comes from, from claims that have happened in the past. And of course, the London market is quite innovative as well. Um, Lloyds of London in particular does have, still have a very good um, sense and view of, I wouldn't go as far as to say every risk is insurable, but they certainly do try to be as innovative as they can. I mean, kidnap and ransom and terrorism can be very, very difficult risks to, to insure. Um, and I think that London market has got the experience, people like Ashley for sure, have got the experience to, to bring to bear to what is a fairly new market for the Chinese. Um, the, the underwriters there also have vast experience too. Um, and I think one thing me and Ashley have been trying to do in the last year, uh, difficult again, as we said, with COVID-19, we are seeing more and more requests for risks from, from China um, because let's, let's have a quick look, if we may, at why they might look outside of the Chinese market. And I think I have to be honest here with what I've heard from some people there. Generally, they can get the cover. I think the, the, the Chinese government is now starting to realize that they have more and more people abroad. I think we've commented before between us in, in, in speech, something like 20 million Chinese students abroad at any one time. And although they may not all be targets, but when there is an incident, then some people will turn on the Chinese students. Um, it, it happened in America uh, when Trump was having the battle with uh, China. A lot of harassment came down to Chinese students abroad. And apart from that, obviously, Belt and Road Initiative, going back to that, a lot of companies, a lot of executive, a lot of government officials are overseas now um, building up the, the BRI. And the Chinese government, not only can it not actually protect all these people as well as it might want to, but there are certain countries where they're not welcome. Um, their money is welcome, their roads and railways are welcome, but interference uh, to protect people on the ground may not be welcome. Um, and, and so now we have a situation where I think Chinese government have now said to private security companies in China and clients in China, you guys need help from abroad as well. So private security companies are building up global networks uh, with the help, I think, of people like Ashley and the insurance industry in London who already know a lot of the security companies globally. So we are helping, I think, uh, to get them outside of China um, and build up their own network so that at the end of the day, um, we can help them and, and, and build confidence and trust. Uh, myself and Ashley have definitely come across situations where some Chinese clients, you know, there was a cultural and a language barrier that we have to be uh, sensible to. And some of them have said, we only want Chinese insurers to insure us. But the problem they have is that the experience isn't there. The willingness perhaps isn't there. A lot of Chinese insurance companies don't have a branch network to be able to help when a Chinese client is stuck in somewhere remote in the world. But the London market and the likes of Price Force 
do have that experience already. So we are trying to, to help them uh, build the trust so that they can come to us more and more and more. I think we've also heard, it's fair to say that, and I've seen this in other classes of business uh, for insurance, not just kidnapping ransom, that some Chinese clients are a bit concerned about Chinese insurance companies insuring their risk quite happily, but then struggling to pay claims when the claims come along. And, and we don't want that in the insurance world. Uh, we run a very compliant operations in the West these days. We do for our troubles in the past. And we know that once you sign a contract and the intention is there, that really you, you need to pay your claims when the claims occur. And in this instance, for kidnapping ransom, you need to also do the things that you promised. You need to be there for the people on the ground and provide them with help wherever you can. And I think there is some doubt with Chinese uh, clients that Chinese insurance companies can do that. So the overall assessment I feel is that yes, for sure, um, if we can have hands across the water, non-Chinese insurance companies working with private security companies and, and Chinese clients outside of China is essential actually. I see when you mentioned Pakistan and the efficiency and effectiveness of the DRI in Pakistan. Unfortunately, uh, my colleague and co-host of this podcast, Amim Lutwi, is not here with us today. Otherwise, he could have been jumping in in, uh, in the discussion about efficiency of DRI in Pakistan. But please, uh, let me be straightforward uh, in asking you uh, a question, just uh, a quick answer for this. Uh, when I was used to travel in Washington DC, and now it's been a while that nobody is going, is, is traveling. Uh, the first question that I was always being asked about Chinese private security firm is that, uh, are they having an hidden, had an agenda or are the Chinese private security being a kind of PLA, People Liberation Army in disguise? Uh, continuing the discussion, uh, Brett, uh, with your experience in Southeast Asia, uh, based insurance company uh, working on Chinese project. We're looking at the other side of the coin. Will you perceive uh, that there is a kind of mistrust or a liability from the Chinese side in dealing with sensible information? Or let me exemplify, will Chinese SOE be reclutant in sharing information due to fear that this information uh, passed to the insurance company will then be passed, uh, let's say, to their American competitors or even to the intelligence service. Um, yeah, this is a this is a really good point, and I'm afraid yes, there is a slight problem and an issue there, which is simply called a lack of trust. Unfortunately, we touched on it several times. Um, we really do want to make a big effort. Um, and it's been difficult with COVID because of the traveling. I, I think we can't stress it enough that we can do as much as we can online. Uh, we've had lots, myself and Ashley have had lots of uh, conference calls with Chinese clients and, and Chinese security companies. But at the end of the day, I think they like to see you and shake hands and you know look in your eyes. And, and so that's, that's caused us a bit of a delay. So the, the trust issue I think is, is very important and we need to build that as we go because um, it works both ways, actually. I think there's been, a, there is certainly a lack of trust from some Chinese clients because we are talking kidnap and ransom here. So it is sensitive information at times, uh, but also the, the, the outside of Chinese insurance companies have suffered in the past, uh, uh, insuring 
different clients and different risks in and outside of China in good faith, uh, and then having problems collecting premiums and having losses for risks that they weren't told about. So we're trying to build that trust further and further as we go. Um, it, it, as I say, it's on both sides, but I believe that the Belt and Road Initiative um, in a globally aware economy, uh, there is a willingness and a need for us to, to close the trade gap as fast as we can, because as we said already, uh, BRI is not just in China or around the fringes of China, it is, it is getting out to a large part of the world. Um, to, to be honest, the pandemic in 2020 really dented that opportunity, as we said. Um, and we really need to try somehow to, to build the trust uh, more as we go along. Um, but to come back to your point, I do think that uh, part of the issue perhaps with, say, the Singapore market, uh, we're right on their doorstep. Um, we obviously have a very Chinese uh, flavour and feel in the region uh, with us, but the fact is that most insurance companies that could handle these difficult and complex risks like kidnap and ransom are simply branch offices of European or American uh, companies uh, in the first instance, and yes, therefore, there is a lack of trust from the Chinese to these companies. We don't really seem to have um, many Asian companies based here in Singapore um, or, or in this region that can handle the likes of kidnap and ransom and therefore perhaps have a hands across the water. And I think that needs to be worked on a little bit more. Uh, we're dealing here, of course, with some of the big European and American companies uh, that, that, that have branch offices here. So, so there is a, a lack of trust for that. Um, I mean, if we look at things like um, in China uh, to counter that, they're, they're trying to use, say, Shenzhen as a financial center, um, trying to build up their experience as, as well, as best they can, um, to try and give confidence to, to Chinese. We've had more contact with people from Shenzhen, um, but again, that still actually is in China. Um, and so I feel that, in this particular class of business, yes, it is very difficult to build up uh, trust and there is a lack of trust there, potentially on both sides. And we, we need to make a big effort uh, in the future. Obviously, I think it would have to be post-COVID personally uh, to try to go and, and, and see if we can build up more and more trust. We are having a number of large companies setting up offices in China. Um, but from what I'm seeing, reading the, the, the economics and, and the news, uh, these are still quite disjointed. It doesn't become a large branch office of a German company in China. It still has the brand over the door, but it actually has to conform with local Chinese regulation. Um, so I think there is a great need for uh, Chinese business um, and the insurance industry outside of China to really have a firm handshake and, and try to work together. Yeah, a few months ago, we had in our podcast, Jen Yu, CEO from Black Panda. Uh, he is former Green Beret Special Forces. Uh, he's been uh, working in the boot of the ground uh, in kidnap and ransom, and he moved to the cyber part of kidnapping and ransom, uh, to the ransomware. Uh, with him, we discussed how moving from kidnapping and ransom negotiation to cybersecurity was a, a very seamless transition, and that the skills required uh, in both areas are quite similar. 
Now, I know that you have started providing uh, cover against cyber attacks. So does new response uh, resonate with you? Let's say, would you say in principle that protecting against ransomware and physical ransom is a quite similar endeavor? And what are some of the unique challenge that come with protecting against, let's say, cyber terrorist, criminal cyber organization and hackers? Thanks, Alex. Yeah, I think, I mean, Brett, you can jump in here where you see fit really but i think you know i mean gene at, at black panda i know well is is one of the, the world's leading experts on this and is an outstanding uh, advocate for for our industry i think um initially when cyber uh cyber ransom and cyber security issues came to the forefront there was this sense that actually uh, dealing with a, a cyber ransom demand was very similar to, to dealing with a a kidnap for ransom uh, event. I think in recent years that's changed to a certain extent and what that's resulted in is a lot of the private security firms bringing in extremely experienced IT experts and, and growing those departments to deal with what has become a, a much more complicated issue than just negotiate, negotiating a, a ransom uh, demand if that makes sense. So I think we've seen a, a change in the industry there with the very big firms with now highly specialized departments with people in there who are IT specialists. Because of course, when it comes down to cybersecurity issues, there's a big data issue and so on and so forth. So experts who were used to dealing with people are now dealing with you know IT systems and, and data systems, which, which is slightly different. So it does require a, a different um, approach to things. I think the other thing to say is that one thing our, our program, our policies provide response for is also uh, social media cyber issues as well, which we're seeing coming to the fray, you know, relating to high net worth individuals. It's very, very easy now to go onto someone's uh, Instagram or Facebook or social media site and and work out where they are and how they live their lives almost on a day-to-day -day basis. And that that's extremely dangerous. So we help clients uh, put in place um, uh, systems on their social media sites to ensure that they are, they're safe where that side of things is concerned. So it's a much wider issue, I think, uh, going forward. Brett, I don't know if you want to add anything to that. Um, yes, thank you there, Ashley. Um, I think it's, um, it's a new area, as we know, a uh, growing area. Uh, it was interesting to, to see, and I don't know Gene as well as you guys do, but I listened to his podcast. Interesting to see that he has moved from traditional, what we might call boots on the ground, the kidnap and ransom on the ground. Um, you know, those incidents are still people do, you, doing piracy or actually kidnap and ransom. Um, uh, and then the rescue for that, that's, that's a people business. And Gene has moved over more now towards what he sees as a big challenge. And it's been in the news a lot. Uh, obviously, protection of uh, security on, on the cyberspace. But, but as you said, Ashley, that there is a, a big difference between a standard cyber policy, perhaps, that's going to cover you for um, straightforward risks, um, your, your network interruption, mistakes by the admin of IT, um, just you know, electronic outages, etc. We're really talking here about the comparison between full-on kidnap and ransom and actual uh, cyber extortion and uh, ransomware and that, and that has become Gene's expertise but I feel that we have perhaps three areas still 
uh, that are quite defined. Uh, the piracy and kidnapping ransom is still going to continue. Uh, that's not going to transition, in my view, into straightforward uh, cyber. I think we touched earlier on this point. There are certain parts of the world where piracy and kidnapping ransom will continue uh, just because of a lack of funding or a lack of ability or it's just that used, that's what these guys are used to doing, so they're going to carry on doing that. Uh, then we have the new cyber threat at a high level for big corporations and governments alike. This is where Gene's focusing, um, and I think more and more people will try to catch up with that, but it is a difficult one because it is a new area. It's ever-evolving. Underwriters themselves have got to try and keep up with the new technology and the new threats that are coming along, and we don't necessarily have an awful lot of knowledge we don't have an awful lot of claims experience and therefore we don't really have a lot of capacity available to put to some of these risks right now. But also there's a third part and that is potentially the coming together of the two um, and in some instances a move from boots on the ground to boots off the ground. Um, and perhaps we'll even see certain situations where um, the two are used together. Um, so perhaps you'll have a situation where You'll have a cyber attack on a, on a vessel that completely immobilizes the vessel. And then you will have the pirates actually come along by boat to do the usual thing that they will do. Uh, that, that situation is out there as well at the moment. So for me at the moment, and I'm not a massive expert in, as Gene is in this field. Um, yes, I certainly could see some transition across. But I think there will be at least two, if not three, sets of threats that we've got to look for going forwards. So please, as we are moving to the end uh, of our podcast, uh, let me ask the latest, the latest question. Uh, and it's related to your prediction about your short and medium term future of the industry. Firstly, is the lookout for 2021 and 2022 for both the maritime and cyber industry, given the ongoing devastation caused by COVID-19. And secondly, what will the kidnap and ransom insurance industry will look like, let's say, in the coming 30 years? Ashley, you first, and Brad, I will let you end up the, the conversation. Thanks, Alex. Yes, I think, you know, the, the, the pandemic has meant that a lot of our clients have been grounded and, and stuck at home. So in the short term, we, we expect, you know, a lot of pent up travel power. And I think in the second half of this year, we'll see people get back on the road, back on aeroplanes. And, and therefore, there's going to be um, demand, um, you know, I think through the roof in the second half of this year and going into 2022. And, and that will result for sure in, in an increase in incidents. It's been relatively quiet on the security front um, as a result of COVID-19. So certainly a lot of pent up travel power there. I think, <clears throat> as Brett identified earlier, in the medium term, we hope to see uh, the linking of business, you know, corridors and relationships opening up um, into China. And that's that's really exciting for us all. And then finally, just to say, looking you know, long term, I think we will see an increase in the consultancy element associated with our insurance products and, and, a, and a widening of scope in terms of what the insurance can provide. So both from an insurance perspective, protecting our clients financially, but also giving them unmitigated access on a, on a wider level to security services. And I think our product will become even more of a hybrid of, of crisis management and insurance as, as we go forward. 
uh, yeah, thank you for that, Ashley. That's very, very good um, intro into that area. It's a very difficult one, obviously, looking 30 years ahead for the kidnapping ransom industry. It's probably easier to look 30 years ahead for um, uh, cyber risk, uh, because that looks like that is going to be a massive battle going forwards as technology advances and, and various governments and, and countries get involved here. Um, but the kidnap and ransom insurance industry, I think, as Ashley rightly said, I think it will carry on. I think uh, we will do our best to keep an eye on uh, economics and global politics and, and really try to open up trust uh, around the world globally. We'd love to work more with the Chinese uh, clients, but also, if necessary, Chinese insurance industry to help uh, show them and train them and get to a point, perhaps, where risk management and insurance is so good that this risk is mitigated uh, completely. Um, I think there is possibly, Jean's view comes back here for me a little bit, that kidnap and ransom, if we can get to grips with it and we can build trust, um, we could we could maybe mitigate that risk quite a lot in the future, but, but cyber is the one that is going to grow out there, and, and, and I think that's what he's looking forward to in the future. Thank you again, both of you, for uh, your very interesting and informative insight. Uh, and thank you all for joining us today. Please also allow me to thank the MEI event and communication team and a special thank to all of our listeners. Please follow us on the various social media platforms and send us your comments and feedbacks.